Good morning. Ooh. If everybody can take their seats, we'll start our study. This morning, we're going to continue with the solas of the Reformation, um, and we're going to be studying Christ alone, sola Christus, which is the very pinnacle of the solas. But first, let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that we might come to understand and not only be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, and that we would do all things for your glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, knowledge of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, we read, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this is a knowledge of God, not about God, but it's an intimate relationship with God. When we think of the Old Testament, when God chose Israel, he didn't choose Israel because they were better than everybody else. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is the covenant, the covenant community in Israel. It was relational. And we see this theme throughout the whole Old Testament of the righteous versus the wicked. Those who were righteous were not sinless. I used to think that when I was a child, I was reading the righteous, oh, they're sinless. No, they were sinners just like us, but they were covered in the righteousness of Christ because of the covenant of grace. They were in a right relationship with God. That's the knowledge that we're talking about here. And John says that that comes through Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So God comes down to us in Christ. All of the religions of the world talk about ascending to Christ. How are we going to get to heaven? How are we going to merit salvation? How are we to gain the Father's pleasure? But in the gospel, we have God coming down from heaven in the incarnation. And to know God is to know him through the incarnation, to know him through the word, because we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John says that the word took upon flesh and dwelt among us. In Genesis 28, we read of Jacob's ladder, where Joseph had a dream, and he says, I, and he dreamt, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Having amazed Nathanael, Jesus said, I am Jacob's ladder. Nathanael, you will see the Son of Man, and the angels will be descending upon him from heaven. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. The ladder was not meant for man to ascend to heaven. The ladder was meant for God to descend in the incarnation to come and save us. You shall call his name Emmanuel because God with us. Jesus is the only way to the Father because he is the only one that purchased salvation for us. 
We read this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place of the curtain where Jesus had gone as a forerunner in our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was not of the order of Aaron. He was not only a priest, but he was a king. The son that Jesus Christ is here in talking about him as the son of David, for he shall save his people from their sins. Messiah. But there is another name for Christ. He is not only Messiah, he is Lord. The judge theologian Herman Boffink writes, to know God does not consist in knowing much about God, but it lies in the fact that we have seen him in ourselves in the face of Christ, that we have met him in our path of life and have personally become acquainted with his virtues, his righteousness and holiness, his mercy and grace in the experience of our souls. Knowing God in the face of Christ brings eternal life, joy beyond measure, and heavenly bliss. Not only does the results in this, but knowing God in itself, new, eternal, blissful life, and beholding the glory of Christ. In the mirror of his word, we joyfully exclaim, we know him because we are known by him. We love him because he first loved us. Now those, those words sound like a dead orthodoxy. Does it sound like the frozen chosen? <laughs> Bob Inc. is saying here that in our relationship with God, it is experiential. It's not just knowing about God, it's trusting God. <sighs> Doctrine and life go together. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, my creed is only Christ. But when you talk about Christ, what Christ are you talking about? The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, if somebody come to you and preaches another Jesus or another gospel, you put up with it enough. So what is the Jesus that we're talking about? There is another knowledge of God that we read about in Romans 1 where it talks about that God has revealed himself in creation. That Paul says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived in what he has created. Well, what does man do? He replaces the glory of God with idols. So we have this knowledge of God in creation, which we call general revelation, and we have the knowledge of God that we have in Holy Scripture that we call special revelation. So what is the difference between what we have here in John chapter 1, verse 17, verse 3, and Romans 1? One is an intimate knowledge of faith. The other is the knowledge of God from creation. One is from special revelation, the other is from general revelation. One is salvific, the other leaves man without excuse. One worship and glorifies God, the other replaces the glory of God with idols and worshiping the creature rather than the creator of all things. One is seeing the glory of God in creation, the other is seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What does it mean to see the glory of Christ? I believe when you see the glory of Christ, you see yourself. You not only see Christ as glorious, you see yourself as sinner. I remember the, the story of Zacchaeus, remember? The, the tax collector. And he was a short man, short of stature, it says. And so to see Jesus, he's coming with the crowds. He climbs up the sycamore tree to see Jesus. And he sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down by, from that tree. I am going to be having dinner with you today. And as soon as Zacchaeus comes down, he captivates the glory of Christ. And what does he do? He repents. Because he was a tax collector, you see, and he was skimming from the top. And so he says to Jesus, half that I have, I will give to the poor. And those whom I have took from, I will pay them double. He makes restitution. He repents. Whenever you are captivated with the glory of Christ, conversion happens, and that is repentance and trusting in the Savior for your salvation. So Jesus was the incarnation. And we must know that distinction between intellectually knowing about God and knowing him personally and intimately through his word. We don't have to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down, Paul says. He's there in the word. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, says, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into the man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has created us with a heart for eternity. But the frustrating thing for Ecclesiastes, and the preacher here is saying, vanity, vanity, it's meaningless. Why? Because his providence is hidden from us. We do not know the beginning from the end. Only God is the beginning and the end. Only him is the alpha and the omega. But there's meaning in it because God is sovereign. And he not only created he sustains it by the power of his hand. He is the providential father. He says, Jesus says, God takes care of the birds of the air. Why do you not trust him to take care of you? Are you not more precious? So the man has been created with a heart for eternity. And we try to fill that heart with idols, to fill the heart with all kinds of other things other than God. St. Augustine, the, the, the Bishop of Hippo said, God has created us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. You see, it's only God that can satisfy the heart that he has created for himself, the heart that is for eternity. Jesus is Lord. What New Testament verse has been 
quoted in, the, in what Old Testament verse has been quoted more often in the New Testament? Psalm 110. Our Lord, the Lord, my God said, well, let's see. Our Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy of your footstore. Our Lord says to my Lord. So there, the Lord there that, that you'll see in your Bible, it's all capital letters, L-O-R-D. And then there's a lower capital, L, lower cap, O-R-D. The capital L-O-R-D is the word in the Hebrew for Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. The name that he gave Moses. The other word for Lord is not Yahweh, it's Adonai. Adon means ruler or king or sovereign. When you put Adonai on it, you put the superlative on it, it's the king of kings and the Lord of lords the sovereign over all things. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. We see this also in Psalm 8. It says, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We see it throughout the whole Old Testament where it says, The Lord God said, the Lord God said. Yahweh said to Adonai. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we read of Jesus, who did not seek to be equal with God, but what? He says he's emptied himself. He set aside his status, not his divinity, but he became incarnate. So why? So he could die for us. And he was obedient even unto the cross. So why is the incarnation so important? In Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. See, Christ had to become man to die for us. The first Adam failed. The first Adam came and he fell and we fell with him. And then people say, oh, that's not fair. Jesus, was, when God made Adam, he said he was good. He was our perfect representative and yet he fell and we fell with him. But yet we needed another savior. We needed somebody that could meet the demands of the law because God demands justice. He not only requires that our sins be covered, our sins be paid for, but he demands perfect righteousness according to the law. Christ met the law for us. When he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist turns to him and says, what, I should not be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. He knew who Christ was, but he said, John, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Christ not only died for you, he lived for you. And he resurrected for you. So the incarnation is important because there's three imputations in the Bible. One is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. Our 
imputation of our sins to Christ, and he dies for those sins. He takes the wrath that we deserve, and Christ imputes to us his righteousness and adopts us into the family of God. He was raised for our justification. We don't hear too much about this. I don't think I've heard too many sermons about that we are justified by the resurrection. But what does that mean when Paul says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? You see, in the Old Testament, the priest would go in every year into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. But when did the people know that their sins were atoned for? When he came out. When he came out of the Holy of Holies, the people knew that their sins, that the sacrifice had been accepted by God and their sins had been forgiven. In the same way, Christ, we are assured of our salvation when he comes out of the tomb. When he is resurrected, we have the assurance that, our, that the atonement that Christ gave up himself for us has been accepted by the Father. It's an assurance of God's approval of the sacrifice. Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, this is the classical offices of Christ. Um, in, in a prophet, uh, we read uh, the transfiguration, the, the beatific vision of Christ, and um, in that it says, um, in my son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is our prophet. We need no other prophets. In, the, in, in Hebrews 1, it says, in latter times, God spoke to us through prophets and dreams. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us, what? Through his son. We don't need to look at it everywhere else. We only need to look to Christ He is our king. Oh, and then what was the, the, the disagreement here in, in, um, with the Roman Catholic Church uh, when Jesus offered himself up? He said, it is finished. We don't need to repeat it. It was accepted by the Father, and it says in, in Psalm 110 that he sat down. He is seated at the heaven, next to the Father, at the right hand of the Father. He's seated. In the Old Testament, the priests would be sacrificing over and over and over again. They would not be seated. But Christ, after he offered himself up, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. We don't need to crucify Christ over and over and over again in the Mass. We don't need to do that. Jesus is our King. The first confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord. In the face of persecution, in the face of death, they said, all you need to do is bow to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Kyrios. And what did they say? We can give taxes to Caesar, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we can never say that Caesar 
is Lord. Even in the face of death, they could not see it. And then we have theologians today who write books about you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. It's not, it's not about you accepting Jesus as Savior or Lord. He is Savior and Lord, whether you accept him or not. He is our king. Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, he, he was murdered and refused to confess Christ. And before he was, he was uh, crucified, he, he, uh, he said um, that, that he would not say that Jesus is Lord, or Caesar is Lord, Kaiser Kyrios, and he was killed for it. He was crucified for it in the early church. Abraham Kuyper once wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Robert Gavri said that Abraham Kuyper was probably the most important thinker of the 19th century. Wow. Why? Why would, why would Gavri say that? Because I think uh, Abraham Kuyper was saying that that um, Godfrey was saying that Abraham Kuyper, he was, he was engaging the culture. He was trying to take our, our theology and, and make it apply to the culture in which he lived. And so you had this fear of sovereignty. You know, you have the, the, the church has the, is the sovereignty over the sacraments and the gospel. And the state is the sovereignty over what? Protecting the citizens restraining evil in society. And God has given them, what, police, jails, to do that. The family, the, the father and the husband is to be the leader of the family. He is responsible to God. There's another sphere. But what is Kuiper saying here? All spheres are under the sovereignty of Christ. He is Lord of all. R.C. Sproul writes, it is one thing to say that the state is, the, is not accountable to the church. It is another thing to say that the state is not accountable to God. And when the state assumes its autonomy and declares its independence from Almighty God, it is not just the right and the duty of the church to call the state to task, not to ask the state to be the church, but to tell the church, the state, to be the state under God. You see, Kuiper was, say, Kuiper was saying that as Christians, we need to have a voice. And if our institutions are being corrupted, create our own institutions. That's why he, he ran for parliament and was elected. And people criticized Kuiper and said, oh, you should be a preacher. God did not call me to be a preacher. <laughs> he called me to be a servant in the state under God. So Richard Niebuhr once wrote of the liberalism and Kuiper was say, uh, you know he was facing liberalism an attack on the inerrancy of the of the word of God in the 19th century. What are we tackling today? <laughs> Anti-Christianity not only attack on, on the word of God, but attack on Christianity itself. 
You know, I was reading a, a publication on a, a poll on confessing evangelicals today. They said, born again Christians. How many of you believe that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man? 60% of them said no. He is not the only way. These are professing evangelicals. 60% of them said that Jesus, denying the words of their Lord, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Oh, but that's so, that's so inclusive. Oh, wow. We live in a, a democracy or a republic, right? Christians do not live in a democracy or a republic. We live in a kingdom with a king. And when that king, when the, when the state says something that is contrary to what God has, has told us, and we see that in, in Paul and Barnabas, when the, the state told them to not preach the gospel, they said what? Shall we obey God or man? Civil disobedience is part because Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign over all spheres. So if Christ is only the mediator between God and man, then in Acts 4.12 we read, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You see, we have a high priest that can sympathize with us and we have access to the throne of grace. He is our mediator. I think of the story and I was, when I woke up, I, was, I heard uh, Lynn and she was uh, listening to R.C. Sproul and he was preaching on Peter where Peter denied Christ three times. And Peter sunk low. His flame flickered low, denying his Savior three times. But what did he say for, to Peter? I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. We have a Savior who prays for us. He is a high priest. No one can snatch us out of his hand because we have an advocate before the Father. So, sacramentalism. In the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, it was salvation through the sacraments. It was in, Christ was in the sacrament. So we were saved through baptism. We were regenerated through baptism. But in the Reformation, it changed everything because they said, no, the sacrament points to Christ. It's a sign and a seal of God's promises to us, but it does not save us. It's Christ that saves us through faith. So, therefore, the righteousness of Christ is received through faith alone, because faith unites us to Christ. And by that union, we receive everything that Christ has, and he receives everything that we have. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. We are saved by the works of Christ. That is true. 
The theologians call this the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And when we say passive, that doesn't mean like what we think of it today. Passive comes from the, the Latin that means to suffer. When we think of the passive obedience of Christ, we mean that he suffered for us. And that his active obedience, that he lived the perfect righteousness, he met the demands of the law that we could not meet. So in Galatians 3.27, we read, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, physical baptism is not primarily a testimony of our faith. It is pointing to Christ in whom our faith must rest. All we need to do is look at the thief of the cross and know that you're not safe through baptism. He turns to him and says, today you shall be with me in paradise. But when we think of, of Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, there was no disagreement over the Trinity or over the incarnation or even the inerrancy of the word of God. The disagreement was over the works of God, the works of Christ. Was it monergistic or was it synergistic? Was it man and God working together? Or was it God alone who saves by his grace? We have also the indulgences. We have the treasury of merit. that there was this treasure of merit that was stored up in heaven by the saints and Mary and we could draw upon it. And what did the confession say on this? That we can never super arrogate or go above and beyond the works of Christ. Now what does that word super arrogate mean? It means to go above and beyond duty. How can we go above and beyond the duty of, of, of the law? We could go above it? Is Christ not enough? We read in the scriptures that even if we'd done all our duty, we would still be unprofitable servants. We sing it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. There is no merit outside of Christ. To go above, it just it boggles my mind to think that one can go above and beyond the merits of Christ. There's one mediator between God and men, and it is Christ. Christ alone. I want to end with a quote by James Boyce. James Boyce was very influential in my Christian walk. Uh, in, uh, when I was growing up, I used to listen to him 
very often, and, he, and God took him very early. I think he was like 61 years old when God took him from liver cancer. And um, he writes, the reformers taught that salvation is by and through the works of Jesus Christ only, which is what the slogan sola Christus refers to. It means that through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has done it all, so that no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works ours performed either here or in purgatory can and to that completed, add to that completed saved work of Christ. There's no works that we can add to the works of Christ. It's Christ alone or it's no Christ at all. James Boyce wrote many books and he wrote hymns. And one week before he, God took him, there were some people that came, went to him and they sang hymns, and they sang one of his hymns to him. And it, it's called, Come to the Waters. And I'm gonna read it to you. It's in the, 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 the handout. And it says, Come to the waters, whoever is thirsty. Drink from the fountain that never runs dry. Jesus, the living one, offers you mercy, life more abundant, in boundless supply. Come to the river that flows through the city, forth from the throne of the Father and Son. Jesus, the Savior, says, come and drink deeply. Drink from the pure and exhaustible one. Come to the fountain without any money. Buy what is given without any cost. Jesus, the gracious one, welcomes the weary. Jesus, the selfless one, died for the cost, the lost. Come to the well of unmerited favor. Stretch out your hand, fill your cup to the brim. Jesus is such a compassionate savior. Draw from the grace that flows freely from him. Come to the savior, the God of salvation. God has provided an end to sin strife. Why will you suffer the law's condemnation? Take the free gift, the water of life. James Boyce went to be with the Lord one week later after they sang that hymn to him. And before he, he left, he grabbed the arm of Rick Phillips, who was the, the one to take his place. And he said, Rick, do you hear what I am saying in that hymn? It all flows from Jesus and to Jesus. Don't ever forget that. Jesus is the living water. He is the one that we thirst for. He is the pearl of the great price. He is the hidden treasure that we will sell all that we have to buy the whole field to seek and find it. He is the only one that can satisfy our hearts that were created for eternity. Amen. Any questions? Not a question, it's just more commentary on 
from a guy who's been around a long time, and uh, especially like in the worship wars, and you know, people love to have their pet theologies, and they put them above Christ. And I, I myself have done that in the past, and um, it, it's just amazing how Christians love to, even especially reformed <laughs> people. You know, they, they love to talk about their pet doctrine, whatever yeah. it might be, and that's why I'm thankful for Tim. He never, he never forgets. Yeah, it's Christ, Christ-centered. We're so, we're so blessed to have Christ-centered preaching in this church. You don't know how much preaching that I've heard throughout my Christian life that is not Christ-centered. Anyone else? Well, I want to read to you a quote from uh, Richard Niebuhr. Um, and and um, he, was in the, he wrote a book on, on, uh, in response to liberalism of his day, and he said uh, that liberalism, liberalism proclaims a worship that is a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ, that you've opened our hearts, O oh Lord, to, to cling to him and him alone, that he is our assurance, he is our life, and that we do not obey for life, but from it. And we do it in gratitude and love for him, our Savior, and to the glory of God, we pray that we might be transformed unto one glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.